Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Barton Grimley. In today's episode, we're asking, how does embedded finance make money? There are plenty of reasons to be evangelical about embedded finance, from its ability to bring financial inclusion to those previously excluded, to the potential to provide help by embedding genuinely helpful services at the point of need. But to quote Wu-Tang, cash rules everything around me. And revenue is important to making sure that embedded finance is a sustainable, scalable option in the future. So in the show, we've put together a panel of experts to discuss how do you set up an embedded finance partnership? How do you make it successful? And how do you find scale to make sure it's profitable? We'll discuss all this and more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. A lot of you know 11FS for our chart-topping podcasts, our events, videos, reports, and a bunch of other cool stuff that we do. But what a lot of you don't know is that this is just all our side hustle. We do so much more than that. At 11FS Ventures, we're partnering with ambitious businesses around the world to design, build, and launch truly digital financial services. We are building banks, shaping new propositions, and growing existing offerings that change the fabric of financial services. And our design, research, strategy and engineering experts are working to improve your customer's relationship with money. To find out a little bit more, check us out at 11fs.com forward slash ventures. This is Fintech Insider After Dark. We are breaking out of the studio and bringing it to the community. It's a live recording of the Fintech Insider podcast featuring your favorite hosts and big name guests. Well, thank you very much for having me back. Join us and become a certified Fintech Insider. Whether it's beers in London or pizza in New York, catch up with Fintech geeks and make new friends across the financial services ecosystem. This is packed out, right? This is standing yeah. We are bringing After Dark to the Steel Yard in London on the 29th of March. Click the link in the podcast description or visit 11fs.com forward slash after dark. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Good night. Let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a panel of amazing guests who can shed some light on this super interesting topic. First off, it's a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Tui Allen, Vice President of Product at Ampla. Thanks for joining us, Tui. Can you remind our audience about you and Ampla, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me. Um, your team does such great work, so it's always a pleasure. Um, really enjoy being here. So yeah, so um, I'm a uh, New Zealand Kiwi by birth, and I grew up in Montreal, Canada, but um, I live in Charleston, South Carolina now. And I've been working at the intersection of technology, finance, and business for over 20 years. Um, and really for the past 10 years, building products that are bringing B2B platforms and embedded financial services together at the work I've done at Blackboard, Shopify, and now Ampla. Uh, and for those who aren't familiar with Ampla, uh, Ampla is the premier financial platform for consumer brands, providing them with growth capital, banking, bill pay services, and op for omni-channel businesses. You can think of it like the operators platform for the CPG space. So thanks for having me. Brilliant. Thanks, Tui. We also have a return to Fintech Insider for uh, Sophie Gibault, co-founder and chief commercial and growth officer at Fiat Republic. Welcome back, Sophie. As well as Fiat Republic, you're also the author of Embedded Finance, When Payments Become an Experience. Can you tell us a little bit about both? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, David. I'm super happy to be here. So um, I spent my career basically the last 10 years in banking as a service. So I'm really, really passionate about the topic. I have seen it evolve uh, over the years uh, from really building middlewares when I was at Bankable and helping fintech uh, launch competitive offer to banks. Then I spent five years at Fidor where I was helping banks launch challenger banks. And then a couple years at uh, OpenPaid and finally launched uh, Fiat Republic uh, um, of, like a year ago. And what we are doing is basically aggregating uh, banking and payment partners under one API for crypto platforms. So like the problem we are solving is access for crypto platforms uh, to, to banking. And what we enable them to do is access banking and embed Fiat flows uh, into the, the platform. So that's like my day-to-day uh, -day, or night and day, I would say. <laughs> but on top of that, last year, I got together with my friend Scarlett Siever, um, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of uh, Money 2020. And back at that time, we just like noticed how embedded finance was taking off. So I had been talking about it since literally 2015, the early days of, uh, of Fedor, and we saw it accelerate. And the funny thing is that I think the time I realized that is when I saw uh, the financials of Shopify and, uh, and then I was like, oh my God, there is no way back. We are there. It's happening. But actually, it has been happening and we didn't see it. But now, like Shopify is making more than 50% of their revenue in, um, in financial services. So at this point that we got in touch with, uh, with Tree, we were running quite a lot of clubhouse sessions around embedded finance for a few months and decided to write this book around embedded finance that is basically democratizing the, the topic for uh, people that don't know where to, to start, but also for people that are much more deep into it. And we have like a, a chapter that is talking about like the different um, actors of it. So yeah, that's it. Super cool. What, what a perspective you have. That's awesome. Um, and, and last by no means least, we have a return to FinTech Insider for Nadia Hijazi, Global Head of Wholesale Digital Channels at HSBC. Great to have you here, Nadia. What can you tell our audience about HSBC and um, your relationship with the Met of Finance? Yeah, it's great to be back. Um, so I, I head up the digital channels for the bank, which covers 53 countries across the world. And across all of those countries, we've been engaged in both growing um, our API capabilities, sort of the enabler for embedded finance, but also implementing multiple open banking initiatives, whether it's in the UK, working closely on all the delivery for the OBIE, or even into Australia uh, and Hong Kong. And it's been quite a fascinating experience because when we started our em embedded finance journey, we had really clear ideas of where we thought we were going to get the traction. And interestingly, where we saw the biggest growth was countries like India that, um, to Sophie's point, just adopted it immediately and kind of run with it. And we look at our volumes, it's coming from there. So the role has been really interesting because we've been able to do a banking as a service initiative with Oracle NetSuite in the US. Uh, and we've got about 400 customers where we're doing embedded finance solutions with them, crossing a whole range of all the way from buy now, pay later, to sort of the normal payment stuff, to account information and, and, and everything in between, I would say. And as Sophie said, it's, it's almost like you woke up one morning and we were trying to push the agenda within the organization. Now suddenly it's everywhere. Everyone's talking about it. And it's a common topic on the agenda items for our conversations with our customers. 
Brilliant. Yeah, it's a great time to be focusing on this conversation. Okay, right. So thank you all for, for joining. Now let's let's dive in. Okay, so let's start by looking at those initial steps for building an embedded finance relationship. Um, and Sophie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you here. So to make sure our listeners are all on the same page, as you literally wrote the book on it, the canonical book, can you put forward a definition um, for what you think embedded finance is? Yes, absolutely. So embedded finance is really like offering banking payments and loan services where the customer needs it. So whether it's digitally or if it's offline, it just means that instead of going in the context of their bank and like needing to open their app specifically, make a request for a loan specifically, they just get it when they need it without even almost having to think about it. And like one of my favorite offline examples is definitely the uh, Amazon uh, Fresh uh, store where you enter the supermarket, you just take like everything you want, you walk out, you don't queue and you're done. And that's like for me, the at the moment, I would say like one of the ultimate um, uh, use case or yeah, of, uh, of embedded finance. You're right. Amazon Fresh actually is, is such a good example of it. I mean, you must don't you must don't think of that in a way, right? But but that is truly embedded finance. I mean, Tui, coming to you, um, do you have any examples you can think of with super successful um, embedded finance implementations? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, you know, obviously, feel really proud of the work that we did at Shopify to um, from a commerce perspective to make the, you know, the shop owner or the person who kind of viewed historically Shopify as somewhere you run your shop to like actually trans- transitioning that to this is where I run my entire business. And that was really by, like Sophie said, introducing at the point in context, the opportunity for them to think about financial services much more broadly and embed all these capabilities around banking, money management, money out, money in, payments, but making it so simple that it was just part of their kind of platform experience with Shopify in terms of looking at Shopify as a commerce kind of platform. Um, But I'm also like, you know, day to day, I love the um, Amazon example. That's a great one. Um, I, I really think like there's some cool examples with like what Toast, for those of you who are um, familiar with Toast, they're really sort of disrupting the restaurant um, industry and kind of really creating a platform for really the operations of kind of the food and bev and restaurant industry. But really, they're a fintech company, and they have embedded, obviously, financial capabilities throughout. And you you see, at least, you know, um, I'll have to say that uh, North America, and especially the U.S., is a little bit behind Europe as it relates to um, being able to have that seamless experience when you go out to eat, to be able to just, like, transact, pay, and have it all be super simple. But, like, being able to, on your receipt QR code or immediately as you're kind of, um, we don't, you know, in the U.S., we many places you still have to give your credit card and go through the process of taking it out of your wallet, sending it back. Who knows what's happening? I mean, that whole experience is like really crazy um, that it still exists, but Toast is really kind of pushing North America and the U.S. along. And one other example, like I think what Apple's doing is also um, really powerful and like they're slowly but surely really becoming a fintech player and like a big fintech player. And um, I'm excited to see what they continue to do. Um, So those are just a couple um, kind of top level before we go deep. Yeah, awesome. It sounds like the biggest role that Embedded Finance is really playing here is removing tons of friction from the customer experience everywhere you go. And and maybe just deep diving a little bit into some of those examples, like whether it's Shopify or Toast or or any kind of non-financial services organization looking at this and going... 
I am a retailer. This is a huge opportunity for me. Where would the starting point be? Is it is it looking at the data? Is it trying to figure out what types of financial products I should bring to market? Where where do you even start to look at this? I think you have to start with the customer. Because at the end of the day, to be successful in this place, you've really got to understand where the friction is for your customer and what you're going to introduce into that journey for the customer that's going to make it really easy for them to use, adopt, drive, grow, and scale. So I think for me, the starting point has always got to be talk to your customers, ask them how many apps are you using to do what you're doing, right? I think a lot of customers are going to come to you and say, I have to use two or three. I have to do something for invoice to pay. I have to do something for my accounting software. And then I have to do something for my banking as an example. And for them, they're managing three apps. That's a very fragmented control environment for them as well, because, you know, they can't really tie a transaction together end to end. They can't see a complete picture of what they're doing. And I think it starts to tell you kind of where where the right product fit is for what you're trying to do. If, if that's where you start, I think if you start from the perspective of I'm going to embed finance in, I'm not sure that's the right starting point. It's really got to be let me understand how they flow through today and how actually they should be throwing through. And then how do you embed the services in at exactly the right point to smooth out that journey so it becomes frictionless uh, for them? Because I think once you solve it that way, you also make acquisition of new customers easy because you've really tuned into where, where the pain point is for them. Is then it's less about technology and more about, wow, you're helping me run my business better. You're helping me achieve the objective that I need to achieve. Uh, and then that drives itself. Uh, uh, yeah. And what about data in this? I mean, maybe Sophie, to come to you, is it's a, a lot of stitching these customer journeys together and taking this friction out requires data, right? To move between different systems and to, to different businesses. I mean, how does, how does that all work when you're staring at this? the first time looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think Tree will have like a very long answer to this one because she has all done it at, uh, at Shopify. <laughs> but um, I think bottom line um, is data is really important in an embedded uh, finance context because it can give an edge to those brands to offer better financial services, cheaper financial services, and offer them as well faster <laughs> without having to ask people, for example, to do, and I know you will probably mention that, but business plans to open corporate bank accounts and, uh, and things like that. So I think data like needs to be used to become an edge to serve better the, the customers. But some things that I would just like to add on top of Nadia, where I fully like, agree. The first answer is customers need to be first because you don't build stuff without talking to them. The second one, I think, which like should be the organization asking themselves why they want to do that. Because today in this podcast, we are talking about, okay, making money out of embedded finance. But And we have like massive examples of like companies that have made lots of money. But I would bet that like many of them haven't started with that. They have said, we actually want to increase customer stickiness, their engagement with our brands, and revenues can be huge, but in the end, it might be a collateral. It might be become primary factor later. But I think that like one of the big benefits of embedded finance starts with like bringing back the customer to your ecosystem and 
increasing the stickiness and the love for your brain. Yeah, I totally agree. Definitely. And, you know, one of the things like to the data comment, you know, I think is it's so important. I think it's it's a bit of like um, magic when you bring together the sort of job to be done that is the primary thing that your end user is using potentially your your solution for. And then you bring the, because the reality is many fintech um, and banks and financial services, really they're data companies. And when you bring together the power of the platform that is focused on solving a job to be done and the data that you have access to through the reality of financial service, whether that's transactions, whether that's card spend, whether that's banking, um, cash flow visibility, um, and you bring those two things together, you have powerful insights that can really kind of take your user experience, your customer experience up a level that brings them power that they can't get in a world where you have those things in silos and you're having to walk down the street to the bank or you're having to like, you know, log into another portal to do something. Um, So I I definitely think there's tons of value in in the data component. Um, And I I know we want to talk a little bit about like also, I'm happy to jump in on thoughts for like taking this to the next level, David, on how do you find like the right... um, partner. Um, and I love, you know, I, I'm going to come at things from the R&D build by partner kind of view of the world because that's where I live, um, running product. But at the end of the day, it's it's kind of like the dating analogy, right? Um, you really need to spend the right amount of time together to understand if it's the right fit for now and for the long term. So if you're looking at, to Nadia's point earlier, you've kind of identified and you've worked with your customer base and you realize there's some friction in the the job to be done flow that your solution provides. And that friction could be solved through an embedded financial solution. So you've done that work. So Nadia was right on point with like, let's start with the customer. Once you've done that and you've identified there's a problem to be solved related to or an opportunity um, to bring in some embedded financial solutions, then you really need to kind of go through this evaluation process to figure out who is the right partner, where is the right fit. Um, And, and think about it from both the today and the longer term. And some things that are like really important to me when you're evaluating um, different financial players and fintechs in the space um, are the partner's willingness and really it's on both sides, but the partner's willingness to be flexible um, and to work to understand my vertical platform needs and my space. Because I think the secret sauce is like when you get really deep in connecting the dots between the um, vertical SaaS or vertical solutions um, sector that it serves and the problems they face, and then the opportunity to think about financial services and fintech capabilities in different ways. So that's like number one, you need a partner who's really flexible. Um, number two, <laughs> very important uh, for, for me, and it was very important to Shopify, finding a partner who is really pushing on the forefront of innovation. You want somebody who's pushing the envelope. And like the reality is that um, 
traditionally, um, the financial services space has been, obviously, it's highly regulated and there's lots of compliance. And so there is a lot of, there are a lot of um, real legitimate things that potentially might hold somebody back from pushing the envelope. But as the, um, potentially the technology player that's sort of looking to bring in a financial, embed a financial capability into my platform, I want to work with somebody who's pushing the innovation front because we're looking to reduce friction everywhere. I think they need to have optionality, right? Because there's not necessarily just one way. You need to, I think, personally, I think the players out there who, financial players and fintech players who are looking to bring their embedded capabilities to, to other to connect the dots with other partners have an, who have an open and very robust set of APIs that are well-documented. I can't tell you how critical that is. Like it is so important. So speaking from the engineering and R and D side of the house, that massively changes your ability to innovate, your ability to build a first class, really high quality system um, and your speed to market, which at the end of the day, if we're trying to make money, we, we need to be thoughtful about um, speed to market. Um, influencing the roadmap for your partner is also important. And um, the last thing I'll mention is I think the partner's ability to scale with you is really important. So if they have regional focus um, only in like one, one country, but your plan is to be a global provider, well, you need to decide if that's the right partner or not. Or are they planning to scale globally too? Um, so things like that really do matter or scale from a size uh, volume perspective. All those things really matter. Thanks, Stewie. Yeah, and, the, and and also on top of that, there are so many different options available now. Um, you know, there's been so much investment into embedded finance over the last few years. You have so many different players and all sorts of different geographies. So there's this this plethora of optionality that exists out there. I'm curious in, in taking it into the into the next level um, and imagine that you know we've gone through that assessment criteria, Tui, for example. We've found ourselves a, a vendor or several vendors, in fact, that we're actually gonna that we're actually gonna work with. A, a lot of our listeners, I think, are, are keen to understand more about the product. So we think about the product of embedded finance being something like banking or credit or, say, even insurance. And lending, I think, is is one of the one of the more interesting areas because you have the the possibility to split profit, for example, between the the banking provider and the embedded um, finance business. Um, but but how does this actually work, right? So, you know, who actually lends the money? How how does the data move about the customer's risk profile from the retailer to to the bank? I get questions like this all the time, David. How does this practically work? So I think Sophie, it might be might be good to start with you and open it up to the panel. What 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 are your thoughts on the on the practicality of how a lending product works in an embedded finance context? Yeah, I get, I get it. So I think there are multiple options really. Like you can have a context where like the company itself do some lending of their balance sheets. And that could be a way they actually start um, putting a product on market and start iterating on it just to prove that uh, basically like the product works, that there is demands for it, that they also create and build their data model. And there is of course, like the possibility of partnering with a bank. And in that case, 
it's the bank's uh, requirements, it's like the data that uh, they, uh, they request, and it's the bank decision. But since it's the bank decision, then you control less the experience in the sense that like the bank is likely to refuse maybe less, um, uh, more uh, clients that you would do because maybe there are some data points that they cannot incorporate in their model. And maybe not because they don't want to, but just because they cannot technically, uh, technically speaking. So you have really like different ways. It depends also on the, of course, the size of your balance sheet. Are you able to invest a few million? by yourself or uh, or actually do you need immediately to rely on a bank and i just would like to piggyback on uh, what uh, three was saying on vertical uh, the necessity for vertical uh, players and i couldn't agree more like whether it's marketplace crypto for what we do but even in a lending context you need to work with people that are specialists now something that i think we need to um, bear in mind and i'm just adding that to the debate uh, rather than anything else is just mentioning that banking as a service and embedded finance can be done through vendors that have middleware and banking partners themselves, or you go directly to the banking partners. And there are different types of implications because like the specialists and uh, the people like that have developed the middleware, basically there will be smaller company, maybe more agile, but also like with the inconvenience of being uh, smaller, um, while the banks will be um, less fast, but able to cover different um, areas, geographies, basically. So just going back uh, to that, and sorry to divert your question, but I think it's important to know that when you are like starting looking into your embedded finance journey, like there is basically as many setups of vendors as there are vendors. Like, just, <laughs> and I don't want to discourage here. I've totally. <laughs> yeah, I think you've seen the, Sophie, the, the whole situation with like the um, reality that FinTech kind of invented itself. And so you have all these point solutions of, that provide a specific, and then we're now in this interesting intersection where it's this opportunity to, do you go with a, point solution in the fintech embedded space or do you look for somebody who has maybe a broader coverage and broader um, platform of services depending on what your journey is with embedded finance but I think that's a really good point and um, there is a lot of important due diligence that should be taken there. Nadia I'd love to get your perspective on this as a bank Um, and also from a wholesale banking perspective you know what what does what does a lending product look like in your in your world and how do you work with clients to get that data flowing and get a, a financial product embedded in a non-financial setting, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a great point. And I just want to link into what Tu was saying about, like, how do you select your partners? Because for me, when it comes to lending, there's, the technology is just one aspect. Actually, more important is, do you have an aligned risk appetite, Right. Are you going for the same segment of customers? You know, do you have differences in who you actually want to, um, you know, a bank from a customer's perspective from a bank, or do you have a difference from a from a challenger from a fintech? And they'll often be fundamentally different. So actually, technology is important, but more important is what kind of flexibility do they have on their models? How easy is it for those models to be integrated into the lending API journey and how flexible is it to change? 
do you agree on where the bar needs to be set from that risk model and process? Do you have a similar approach to the governance of it? And how do you handle, you know, the bad debt and the customer and, and the journey around that? Because to me, those are really fundamental. The technology is just at the end of the day, the enabler. And, and it's the same with the data policy, you know, as, as both Tui and Sophie said, there are lots of regulations around how we can handle data within within a bank. Obviously, one of the great things about the UK is open banking opened a lot of that up for the exchange of data. And having seen like open banking now in different countries, it, it really was worth the investment uh, that we put into that process, as painful as it was as a bank, you know, as part of the CMA9 to implement it. We're now sitting back and going, hey, this was actually excellent you know we're, we're getting a, a dual benefit and so to me Dave these are the, the key things that kind of need to come together to deliver the right product to the right customer for the for the right need uh, and it's worth spending the time on maybe we call it the boring stuff but it's the risk and the governance really that makes sure that you get the right capability into the market in the way for the customer because one of the other things we want to do with lending is create as much transparency and assistance as we can to, to, to the customer. So if they ask us for a large amount and we can only give them a small amount, then offer them the small amount. Don't decline the transaction. It's all about really spending the time with, uh, with the partner to really define what do we think a best-in-class journey is for lending and then how do we realize it through the embedded finance journey so that they get what they need in the end and that they have the transparency in where they are in the lending, but also we can understand what's going on and we can adjust and tweak and adjust to what they really need um, as they progress their business. Because let's face it, doing business two years ago, you know, pre the financial crisis is completely different to today. And the needs to get the credit and the timeline to get the credit changes. So you have to have that adaptability in your embedded finance solution to be able to switch and pivot as quickly as you can to those circumstances. And just on that switch and pivot and, and adaptation, I guess, like what, what are the biggest challenges that, that you're seeing or I suppose that you've seen in, in, in getting a product to market, right? Getting that, that very first loan to market. What's the biggest challenge you tend to see? Is it is it APIs? Is it regulatory? Is it ways of working? Is it all of it, right? Could be all of it. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's not talked about in the embedded finance space is ways of working. Fundamentally, um, the banks work in a completely different way to a fintech. I know we say it a lot on podcasts like this, but the reality of it is is pretty sobering, you know, when, when you meet it head on. Uh, and the culture gap between the two organizations does take some time to kind of work through. And that's why when you really choose that partner, again, You've really got to spend time and think how we're never going to get an exact culture mix, but how flexible and innovative, to use Tui's word, are they in the way that they think and ability to 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 adapt to that? And and, and that would be one of the key things that I would I, I would say is important. And the other one definitely is the governance and the risk uh, and the ability within a large organization which isn't necessarily used to reacting so quickly, being able to adapt to that and do it quickly, but also the ability for the smaller organization to understand why those policies are in place and reach a middle ground. Yeah, fully, fully agree with that. And on that note, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We're going to be back very, very shortly. 
Buying a home is the biggest and most significant purchase most people make in their lifetime. And it doesn't matter where in the world you're buying, the process is rarely easy. In our latest report, experts from our 11FS Ventures team look at why the home buying process is broken, how we can fix it, and the massive commercial opportunity it presents for banks and fintechs. Download your free copy at 11fs.com slash homebuying. That's 11fs.com slash homebuying. Okay, so we've surveyed the options. We've sorted the plumbing out. We've got our vendor or vendors, and we've figured out all those niggles and getting something going. Um, and our embedded finance play is now underway. So the next thing really is to, to try to figure out, okay, so how do we make sure it's making money both now and in the future? How does it scale? Um, and the very first thing to think about is this big change, almost globally, I think, in interest rates over the course of the last six months or so. And I think the big question, Sophie, I'm going to come to you on this, is do, do you think that the current interest rates make credit an attractive product for an embedded finance play? Is it making profitability easier to attain? Well, there is definitely an interest to, to get more deposits. Like that's I can, <laughs> I can confirm for any kind of providers working with, uh, with banks, because the truth is that in an embedded finance context, um, you often get paid for like payments, banking, like accounts, like just like the normal transaction banking stuff. But as like an embedded finance player, generally you, you don't get much in interest rates, or at least over the past few years, we were more in in a, in a context of um, negative interest rates rather than uh, positive interest rates. Also, like we, so I'm talking for us Fiat Republic in the sense of like where I am, so like that's the experience I'm going through right now. But indeed, there is um, more interest now to get deposits from, um, from users. Um, when, because just because like you generate revenues without having to think about it really. So, um, so interest rates definitely have like a big play when it comes to, um, to embedded finance. Absolutely. And, and thinking about a like going back to the lending point um, from earlier on in the discussion, Nadia, you know, as a, as a, as a bank or as any bank generically, how would you actually share that risk? Um, and interest on lending products such such that the the retailer or the, the the customer that you're working with can actually benefit from some of that upside. Is that something that you're seeing the banking sector more and more interested in? So we haven't we haven't done that particular use case yet. I mean, our use case is more aligned to what Sophie was talking about, where the customers are opening, um, the common customers are opening uh, accounts. Those accounts will own interest. It all comes down to what the revenue sharing model that's agreed as part of the contract that's put in place between the two parties and what's included and what's not included. It tends to be the way that they negotiate the contracts generally tends to be a risk reward. Um, uh, in, in the way that they do it. Essentially, if who's going to take the losses if it goes wrong? And generally, the smaller party isn't going to take the losses because they don't normally have the balance sheet to be able to sustain that type of loss. So you would tend to uh, uh, believe that the contract would be more weighted toward where the losses will, will, will fall. And certainly from a, I guess one of the points I'd like to sort of also talk about is at the end of the day, if you want to make money and scale, you've got to have a really good onboarding journey. You've got to have a really good sales and marketing ploy. So your customer needs to be able to 
uh, understand the benefit, uh, be able to kind of uh, digitally onboard onto it as quickly as possible with as least human contact as possible. Um, and then you get down to how much money is there to share, right? Because if you're not able to easily grow the customer base or easily create enough buzz in the market to, to get the throughput of either lending or the transactions or uh, the balances, it's, it doesn't really matter what the contract is, whether it's revenue sharing or anything else. So to me, the most important thing with revenue sharing is make sure that you've got a really good sales strategy, marketing strategy, digitization of onboarding, and the ability for customers to then take new products so that you can cross-sell and really grow the potential of that customer. I'd love to pivot the discussion actually a little bit into payments because we've been talking a lot about lending and interest rates. Um, but Tui, I'm going to come to you. In the, you know, in the, in the US, there is an opportunity to be charging interchange fees that are high enough to, to be making money. Um, you know, do you see payments moving forward into the future as a as a profitable um, option? Are interchange fees enough, actually? Yeah. So um, payments, I think, is hot again. It's kind of interesting how these things go through cycles. And again, of course, the um, the reality is things are different um, region by region. But in North America and specifically in the U.S., I think there is an increased interest in like owning the being part of the flow of funds and being far having a strong um, play tied to your, from an embedded finance perspective, having a payment strategy around your embedded finance play. Um, and yes, there's opportunity to, um, to have some partnership uh, rev sharing agreement with regards to interchange and good opportunities there to bring in some transaction fees that can benefit an embedded finance player who wants to kind of move into the kind of bring in payments into their platform strategy. What I would say though, the real benefit and the real kind of opportunity is when you combine the interchange revenue opportunity with a subscription fee for your, um, your SaaS platform. And the combination of those two is really ultimately in the real I think, opportunity to make money off of an embedded finance play. And that's beyond just like payments interchange, but I think that applies to just more broadly your embedded finance strategy because dealing with banking or payments or lending, these are very sticky products. And if you can combine that with a great platform B2B sort of SaaS um, vertical niche that you serve, whether that's like travel or whether that's healthcare or whether that's, you know, uh, commerce, uh, manufacturing, the co- where they likely have some interesting sticky areas as well, the combination of those two together in the flow of the customer and that job to be done is incredibly powerful. And I think that's ultimately where you can um, really optimize for a strategy that is quite quite rewarding um, and win-win for for both the unit economics for um, for the SaaS provider and the fintech potentially but then also a good experience for the coffee and customer too yeah to your point about those regional um, disparities is su- super interesting I mean if you you look at Europe for example and the UK where interchange fees are far less of a of a thing. Um, you know, Sophie and, and Nadia, I'm, I'm keen to get your your perspective on some of these other markets. How how can payments become profitable? And if not, 
you know, to, to some of the points that Tui was making, where are the areas where profitability can be obtained? Yeah, so I, I do actually agree with Tui, even in, even in the UK, Europe and other places, what we're seeing with customers is there's a willingness if you remove a lot of the friction in their journey by embedding the payments into the right part of their processes, they're actually okay to pay for a subscription package, right? Because they get a direct benefit. So you're earning on the transaction. If you can get the operating account, you're also earning on the balances within within the operating account as they're moving it around. And then you've also got the ability to, to upsell to them as well. And then what we're thinking is also, you know, bringing things like pay by bank, which is effectively bypasses the card, really important for small businesses who just can't afford to pay, you know, large interchange fees, even though they're smaller than the US, they're still significant for those businesses. So you're able to offer them a variety. I think people want choice, right? They want they want to be said, you can only do it this way. They want to be offered different types of payments at different price points to meet different needs that they've got uh, and the optionality around that. And you'd be surprised based on those things, they're more willing to kind of move over and build a relationship with you because they can really see that you're focused on them and not just on generating revenue. Because I have to say, I've never found Having worked in bank for many years, the objective of generating revenue never normally generates revenue. The objective of solving a customer problem and doing it in a way that puts them at the heart of it, the money comes then because people feel that they're being treated fairly, that you're taking an interest in them and that you're really committing to helping them do what they need to do. Yeah, agree. I mean, it's an interesting point. I mean, if if the product isn't the be all and end all, right? If if a lot of what we're talking about here is customer acquisition, is customer stickiness, then is there an opportunity instead for a bass player or an embedded finance player to actually say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna charge you a cost per acquisition? You know, we're gonna charge you for the lifetime value of the customer for everything that we're doing. I mean, are, are, is any of you seeing any kind of innovative payment kind of models in that in that area? I think there are revenue share in the context of, of course, like lending, but also wealth management, right? So like there is the model that Nadia and we have described, which is like the pure transaction banking uh, one. And like to some extent, like to that, I think we can add FX, which it can be also part of kind of the subscription package and like kind of increase uh, the the total uh, customer lifetime value in general. But then you have like those models that are just revenue share based on um, on the business you bring together by launching the uh, the the opportunity. Um, and like that then can cover like all different uh, areas of like the embedded finance proposition that you have um, you have launched. And of course, like one partner comes with uh, all the uh, the customer base and like uh, put all the efforts into converting their customer base into financial services, while the other one provides the services and to some, some extent the capital that is required for the lending. So that's the kind of big joint venture like uh that that has been existing actually for many many years like it's what we were doing back in the days at uh at Fidor to some extent when uh, Fidor was using their banking license and i guess just to just to close on on one question for for you Tui. i mean there are there are clearly huge upfront costs to to going into this is is what what, what is the biggest challenge to becoming profitable is it that cost base that you have to go in upfront Yeah, so um, both Nadia and Sophie touched on this a bit um, throughout the conversation, but I think you 
going back to like starting with the customer and really understanding what problem you're solving is critical because at the end of the day, I'd say the biggest challenge you have in not hitting your um, KPIs or your metrics around profitability are not having product market fit. And when you're in a situation where you're looking to embed a financial service into your platform, product market fit around that job to be done and that end-to-end workflow is critical and that you're actually solving a customer problem in a way that is significantly differentiated from what exists today in a disjointed world. And you have to then also scale very quickly because the reality is most in terms of profitability and in terms of, um, you know, the unit economics working, you need to have a good amount of scale because financial services tends to be sort of a scale type of model. And so having that product market fit is really critical and then scaling quickly once you have that. I'd say that's probably the biggest challenge where I see potentially companies failing and that they don't have that focus. Great. And on that note, that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone, for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? Let's start with you, Tui. Yeah, sure. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn, um, Tui Allen, and you can learn more about Ampla um, at getampla.com. Sophie? Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Sophie Guibaud, so G-U-I-B-A-U-D. I feel it's needed. And uh, Sophie at fiatrepublic.com. Thank you. And Nadia? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn too. And surprisingly, you can also find me on LinkedIn. It seems we all use that. Um, <laughs> LinkedIn.com. Um, I'm at David BG. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make it better and helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thanks very much, everyone. Goodbye.